The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. I imagine uh, many of us have seen the recent story about the remarkable and miraculous transplant that took place in Cleveland earlier this week. If you haven't, I'll tell you, a woman in Cleveland received a new face, the first American and the seventh person ever to participate in such a miraculous, life-giving medical wonder. Now, as remarkable as that story is, I want to start this morning with another story that I heard in the wake of this big story. It's a little story that's really not so little. Wednesday afternoon, I was driving in the car, and I tuned into Talk of the Nation, which is a call-in radio show on National Public Radio. Many of you have probably listened to it. And the topic of the day, as you might expect, or one of the topics of the day, was living with disfigurement. And there were a number of guest experts on the show. There was uh, an inspirational humorist who'd been born with a facial disfigurement. There was a veteran from Iraq who had suffered one in battle. And there was the reporter from the Cleveland Plain Dealer who was covering the unfolding story at the Cleveland Clinic. But the person who really grabbed my attention in all this was a caller from Des Moines, of all places. A plucky girl named Nora. Nora responded to the blunt questions and statements of Neil Conant with a clear, strong voice and not one shred of self-pity or self-aggrandizement. Hi, she said. I'm 14 years old, and I was born with a double cleft palate. And when Neil asked, well, you know, how's it going? She said, it's going pretty good. 
I'm having two surgeries this summer, and I have to have a lot of braces. You're going to be left with scars. Yeah, I'll always have the scars for the rest of my life, but my friends are really good about supporting me. And once you get to know somebody with a disfigurement, you don't even notice it anymore. Yeah, those are your friends, though. Other kids, are they as nice? Well, whenever I go someplace new or something, there's always people that stare. But that's just because they don't know. So, over the years, I've learned to look past that. It can't be easy, though. It's got to hurt. Yeah, it does hurt a lot. So, you go back into surgery later this summer? Yeah, I have two surgeries this summer. And when do you think you'll be over with it all? Uh, I think I'll be over it. Well, I don't think I'll ever be over it. I'll always have to live with it because it's such a huge part of my story. But the last surgeries will probably be in my last year of high school. Thank you, Nora, for sharing your story with the nation. As you can probably imagine, even going in with your best A game, it's hard to imagine a tougher crowd to walk among each day than a group of teenagers who have the great gift of being able to detect baloney miles away and also don't suffer fools lightly. This young woman could choose to hang back, to hunker down in a bunker of fear, but instead, supported by her friends, we might even say abiding in the love of her friends, she reaches out into the world. Even when others are not able to see past her face into her heart, she is able to see past the stares on their faces into their hearts and move out into the world as a light in a world that seems to prefer darkness. Now, the Christians in the communities that produced the gospel lesson this morning and the epistle lesson this morning also knew something about rejection and misunderstanding. They claimed as their Messiah a man who had been crucified, a humiliating and disfiguring fate if ever there was one. The Jewish communities that produced these letters were in the midst of the painful process of separating themselves, or depending on your point of view, were being driven out by other Jews who could not accept that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God. These Jews who followed Jesus had reason to hunker down in a bunker of fear. Their lives and their livelihoods, all the webs of connections that had given their life meaning, were being torn apart. And yet, they could not, would not be silent. They had to tell their story. They had experienced this Jesus and had known his grace and his power. They also knew how hard it was, how hard it was, to keep his most important commandment, to love one another. Our epistle this morning hammers home just how critical love is to the vibrancy and vitality of a Christian community. Just in case you were counting, love was said 27 times by Trey just a moment ago. And it's clear, if you aren't loving your brothers and your sisters, 
You are not loving God. Some scholars tell us that when Jesus talks about abiding, abiding in him, as he does in the gospel lesson this morning and elsewhere in the gospel of John, what he's doing is telling his disciples to keep his commandment to love one another. Now, abiding love is not primarily about resting in a comfy community with others just like ourselves, but rather it's about carrying concrete acts of love, not only inside our body across differences, but out there in the world. And the purpose of this love was not to create a holy huddle, but again I say, to build a foundation, to reach out into the world, to take this message of love to a world that needed it then and needs it now. They saw it as their mission to bring light into a world that seemed then to prefer darkness and perhaps even now seems to prefer darkness. Back to our friend Nora. I've been wondering how her friends love her, how they abide in one another's love. Do they make her laugh? Do they hug her and kiss her? Do they acknowledge her disfigurement, but just kind of look past it, look through it, look beneath it, look beyond it? Do they honor her by not pampering her because of her difficulties, but honoring her and respecting her by being honest with her? Do they eat junk food late into the night, text messaging their friends with those speedy lightning fingers? Do they have honest fights? Do they really rip into each other, but then make up and move on with their life together, being friends that care about each other? Do they invite her to places where they would invite their, quote, normal friends? Or do they introduce her by saying, this is my friend Nora, you've got to meet her. However they love each other, however they love Nora, what they do sustains her and helps her to reach out into the world with hope despite the pain of fear and fear of rejection and failure. And to see others, note how she's able to see others with compassion and love. Fear does not hold her back. Love sends her forward and out into the world. Now, these acts of love may be not so easy and not so inspirational, perhaps, as they take place in our church communities. But, for example, we can think of the respect that we can offer to the most tiresome and long-winded committee member. We can offer them the respect and love of continuing to listen. It's the ministry of holding one's tongue, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer likes to put it. That's abiding in Christ. Or it might be standing faithfully beside a parishioner who, out of pride, refuses help, and yet eventually finds himself in such a bind that he can no longer refuse that help. And we, as we stand by, we don't stand there waiting to judge and to say, I told you so. But we're there with open hands and open heart, ready 
That's abiding in Christ. Or it might be to stay connected to a parishioner or a colleague with whom we may have serious disagreements about the uniqueness of Christ or the real presence of the Eucharist or gay rights or open communion or the bailout plan or the master plan. And we abide by extending our hand in fellowship at the peace or at the coffee hour and receiving the bread and wine together. That's abiding in the love of Christ. Moving out wider into the church at large, here's what I think is an amazing act of concrete love. I hope some of you have heard of the man named Elwin Wilson. Elwin Wilson was a confirmed racist and violent bigot who some 45 years ago during the Freedom Rides in the South, you know the ones that helped register black voters and, and segregation. During that time in South Carolina, he was caught on film beating with a group of other men a group of black men caught on film, beating them, some of them senseless. And one of those men was John Lewis. You probably know him as a representative from Georgia in the House of Representatives. Well, Elwin had, and is continuing, continuing to have, a serious spiritual change of heart. And he began to seek out each and every one of those men that he had beaten and harmed in any way. And he went and has tried to go to each one of them in person to say, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And one of the trips that he made was to Washington, D.C. to meet with John Lewis in his office to ask John Lewis to forgive him. Perhaps you saw the television clip of these two men, forgiveness asked for and forgiveness given. Two men, a white man and a black man, embracing each other as brothers in faith. Despite what some doubters may say about Elwin's motives, I choose to see this as an example and as evidence of concrete love, of abiding in Christ. Love that builds it builds up. Now, abiding in Christ doesn't always have to be hard, hard. And it doesn't always have to be, fortunately, history-making. Here in this place, in Trinity, while not perfect, we have this going on all the time. There is the faithful and patient and mostly unheralded care and prayer that goes on with the sick and the lonely and the grieving that's abiding in Christ there is the cooking and eating and jollity of the progressive dinner that's abiding in Christ there is the laughing and knitting of the handcrafts group I tell you if you ever have the good fortune to be here on one of the Thursday mornings when those women are knitting and stitching you won't believe the laughter and the guffaws that radiate throughout this building. It's amazing. 
If you need to pick me up and can come over on one of those Thursdays, if you can knit, that's fine, but you don't have to. Just soak it in. That's abiding in Christ. There's the early morning fellowship of the men's and women's prayer groups. There's the hilarity and the poignancy of the production every year of the Christmas pageant. All this is abiding in Christ. And of course there's more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And as we know, this abiding can never be mostly inward. It is meant to lead outward. And in fact, true abiding love cannot keep to itself. Love is one of those things that only gets bigger the more you give it away. It can't be contained. It must overflow and go out. And especially in hard times like ours, it is tempting to let the weight of our disfiguring fears, of of, of economics, of cultural fears and worries, it's easy to let those hold us back, to keep us from continuing to dig deep into that abiding love in Christ and then to stretch out in the world. And yet here at Trinity, we show signs that we're not holding back. We're going out. For example, again, this is just the tip of the iceberg. During our most recent pledging season, giving among the most faithful regular worshipers here went up 15%. The letter, I think, had only asked for 9. Is that right? 9%? There's a growing group of parishioners that's been going into St. Stephen's to tutor young people there and to break bread with them. We have a growing group that's discerning a risky and potentially expensive mission opportunity in Africa after taking in and digesting the speakers that we had for the Millennium Development Goals during our Lenten Forum series. And there's energy to move ahead with the master plan, to reach out into the community and ahead to our descendants, the same way that 50 years ago, people in this parish reached forward to us to build this magnificent space and to reach out into the community. All this and more shows that we're getting it. Somehow we're getting it. What the Christians of John's time knew to be true. That Jesus' love strengthens us inwardly and sends us out into the world as light and as life. Now, Nora and her friends might use other language, but they know it too, that love strengthens us, frees us, sends us out into the world to give us the strength to do the work that God gives us to do. Thanks be to God. Amen.